and especially their sexual differentiation is the culmination of God's creative work in both accounts. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Every You Shall Bow, your seasonal Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship. My name is Mike Gomer Gormley, and I am joined, as always, by my ruggedly good-looking co-host, Dave Van Vickle. How you doing, Dave? Good, but you know, you say that, and then every time I see how like thick and dark your hair is, I feel bad about myself. Listen, that's only <laughs> this is a strategic aging. wearing of these headphones. Because once once I bow my head down, it's like it's my dad's bald spot. No, I'm doing good. I'm really excited for this episode, like more than any episode we've had so far. Even the episodes that we recorded together in that hotel. Room? Absolutely, oh, there's no question. Offensive. In my mind. I'm offended. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we have today a very special guest, someone who I have learned a ton from, and I think is one of the coolest people in the Catholic space today. Doctor Abigail Favale, how you doing today? Oh, I'm doing good. It's it's good to be here. Yeah, I think I think you are the cat's pajamas and the bee's knees. I uh, I, I don't know what cat's pajamas means, but I texted that to my wife today and she said, or my daughter found the text and she was like, what does this mean, dad? What, what does it mean to be cat's pajamas? And I was like, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, stop looking at your mom's phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh gosh. That got me in trouble the day before. We're going to leave it at that. We have been talking for, for the past six or so weeks here on the show, learning how to evangelize the culture, especially in the number one reason why people say they left the church's teaching outside of just drifting away is often misunderstandings or understandings and rejection of the church's teaching on human sexuality and kind of everything that goes with it. So me and Dave have been looking at this issue through the lens of JP2, especially the theology of the body and love and responsibility, kind of trying to address these big topic issues, cohabitation, fornication, adultery, you know, everything that kind of goes with it. We had Jason Everett on the show to talk about transgenderism. And today we just want to step back and kind of get a bigger picture of understanding a Catholic vision, a holistic Catholic vision of gender. Dr. Abigail Favale, you are, what is What is your official title at Notre Dame? So my title is Professor of the Practice, which sounds like, yeah, isn't that weird? Isn't it <laughs> a is weird title? Weird. That's so, cool, though. Well, it's like, that That sounds like something yeah, out of like awful. Lord of the Rings or something. Like, right, well, yeah, totally. exactly. Like, yeah, what am I practicing? I don't know. Like it's you just, knelt down and they bestowed it on yeah. you. Or something like that. Yeah. You are now. Oh, I mean, practice. it's kind of like a, it's a designation for faculty who aren't in like traditional tenure track roles. So it's kind of a catch-all term because oh, okay. I'm, I'm appointed in an institute, not a department. Anyway, this is like uni- boring university inside baseball. But yeah, so I'm a professor. We'll just say that. And my area of expertise is in gender studies and women's issues. So I'm working in an institute, the McGrath Institute, whose mission is to form faithful Catholic leaders. So I'm trying to do that at Notre Dame. So I've been in this role for just over a year. So I'm still kind of figuring, figuring it out. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. The McGrath Institute has such an amazing reputation. So it's exciting what's going on there. and That's awesome. So this is interesting. So your background, your expertise is in gender studies, where did all that, like, what's your academic background? Well, so my undergrad is in philosophy. Although by the time I was a senior, growing up, I just wanted to be a writer. I love literature. I love writing. And that's probably my primary, my first love and my primary vocation is is writing. That comes so across, by the way, (laughs) the book that it's like, oh, not only is this good content, but this is easy to read. Yeah. But I, I fell in love with philosophy as an undergrad. It was I was like, oh, my gosh, I can, like, ask questions about things that I'm not supposed to ask, you know. And so I'm a generalist at heart. I love philosophy. I love literature. I love theology. But one theme that 
I'm perennially interested in in all of various disciplines is the deeper meaning of womanhood and also that connects to the question of gender. So I'm just a nerd about that. So when I graduated from undergrad, I went on and studied women's writing and gender theory and feminism at the University of St. Andrews. So my degree area is literature, but it was heavily feminist philosophy. My master's degree was gender theory and women's writing. So that stuff's always kind of intersected. The intersection. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Isn't it funny? I was listening to Catholic Feminism, which is the title of the show of Maiden Mother Matriarch that Luis. Louise, yeah. How do you say her name? Louise, Louise Perry. Louise, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love her. I think she's incredible. Her episode on trigonometry was was awesome. She had you on the show and I just started going through going through some of it. And I was thinking like, yeah, you know, the stuff that we need to talk about today is so important because the evolution of gender and we talked about this a little bit on Catching Foxes and you've been on Pints with Aquinas and whatnot. But gender studies, like I think she said used to be called women's studies. Now it's mm-hmm. gender studies. And I just yeah. thought, like, just that one sentence, like, wow, how appropriate is that in the evolution of today's conversation? Because that's what's happened. Like, you try to fight for an understanding of, of women's rights and women's involvement in the political world and inherent dignity and all of this stuff. And then all of a sudden, the goalposts get shifted and shifted and shifted. And now we don't even understand what a woman is and, you know, the complementarity that we find in the book of Genesis that we find throughout scripture and all that stuff. So you have an awesome conversion story. I would encourage people to get your book into the deep, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> An unlikely convert. Your, your story is awesome. So let's, let's go into the gender issues. So how did, gosh, I hate asking these general questions, but you got to get the book for the details. But how do we get to where we are now where, you know, you go from this strong champion of women's understanding women's rights issues, women's participation in political life to now we don't even know how to answer. We have our top politicians who don't know how to answer that question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the threads I trace in the book is kind of the story of how the contemporary gender scene is an outgrowth of feminist thought, even though it seems ironic, right? You're kind of saying like, how did we just suddenly get from like women's studies to gender studies? And why is this question of gender supplanting the question of woman? Well, ironically, it's women who've moved those goalposts for the most part. (laughs) Um, So that's another kind of complicated layer to, to the story. But basically I start in the kind of the beginning of the 20th century with the feminist movement. And one of the things I think it's important to realize about feminism is that it's never really had its own coherent philosophical underpinnings or philosophical foundation, right? So it, it was a movement that was very much kind of grafted onto other systems of thought. And this is particularly true in the second wave, but even in the first wave, it was really kind of grafted onto just basic liberal philosophy. There wasn't a sense that we needed to upend the liberal order And then the second wave feminism, you have more Marxist thought creeping in, right? So there's not a lot of like consistent content to feminism, but it tends to be like an emphasis on women's rights that's grafted onto some other underlying philosophy. Mm. And another important thing to realize about feminism is that especially since the second wave, which would be the mid 20th century. So first wave being early 20th century leading to suffrage movements and all of that. And then mostly dormant with the second Mm -hmm. sex of Simone de Beauvoir and and whatnot, mostly dormant until the 60s, civil rights movements, and then you have exactly. a large wave of second, yeah, second wave feminism, which has a large amount of Marxist thought embedded in it. W- did the first wave have a large amount of Marxist thought? No. Not really? No. 
no. mostly Christian women who were sick and tired of <laughs> domestic violence. Yeah, yeah. And, Christian yeah, women yeah. who, you know, had kind of fought for the temperance movement and then right. were like, hey, we can do political things. Let's let's work on getting the vote. So, yeah. I mean, that's a simplistic rendering there. But <laughs> so feminists thought, especially Simone de Beauvoir onward, let's say, since you brought her up, has been ironically very resistant to the idea that there is such a thing as a stable nature of woman. Mm. So in kind of theory terms, they're very resistant to the idea of essentialism, with essentialism being understood as there is this ground of woman that is natural, it is pre-social, and that is essential to what a woman is. And we can talk about it, we can articulate that. And so feminist thought has been very much more on the side of social construction, that woman fundamentally is a social construct that has been created in order to kind of prop up the system of patriarchy, basically. So woman has been created as this kind of fantasy or mirror image of man, this other to man, in order to kind of prop up masculinity. And so in that line of thinking, what it means to be a woman, what that shared kind of ground of womanhood is an experience of oppression or this this fact of a certain kind of social system. Right. But there's not not really pre-social content to it. And this emphasis on social construction, on woman as a social construct, really becomes heightened later in the story of feminism, especially around the 1990s with Judith Butler, who kind of upped the ante and said, not only is woman a construct, but even the concept of female is a construct. So really just everything is a product or a fiction of, of society. There's this tension or this irony in feminist theory already before we even get to some of the gender stuff that's happening now, Mm. where there's this movement and this system of thought that's dependent upon a concept that's also denied simultaneously, right? So early first wave feminism is yoked kind of to political liberalism, you know, participation, you know, all that stuff. The second wave, more Marxist understanding, but but rooted in the existentialist turn, right? So- You have an essentialist. Would, would you say, it, it, this might be too reductionist, but would you say the Catholic position aligns with the essentialist? See, th- this is the interesting thing, I think, where the social constructionist, so people believe that society constructed this understanding of what w- a woman is, what a wife, a mother, you know, whatever, a woman, now what female is. We just made that up. These were things that we constructed from tradition and, and religion and all sorts of different things that kind of go into it. But you can see, like, they're obviously seeing some truths here, obviously, because mm-hmm. you're not going to, no one's going to believe something that's 100% a lie. So as a Catholics, we wouldn't just say, well, of course, we're all essentialists, end of story, because we would also probably involve some of the insights of the social constructionists without going that far. Is that how you would put it? Yeah, I mean, I think essentialism is a, is a term that's used sometimes very technically, like mm-hmm. in Aristotelian philosophy, right? And But in feminist theory, it's used much more generally. Mm, It's used in contrast to social constructionism. It's really kind of refers to any assertion of a stable nature of woman or woman as a natural category, right? So in that sense, yes, Catholic thought is essentialist in that Catholic thought holds that human nature exists and also that sexual differentiation is a natural component of human nature. And so then we can talk about woman in in terms of her natural category. But of course, at the same time, we also realize that human beings are social and language and cultural norms profoundly shape our understanding of reality, our understanding of ourselves. So we can definitely talk about the forces of society that shape 
what we think a woman might be or these kind of ideals about men and women. And that's definitely something that's important to pay attention to and to critique when, you know, it's representing something false or harmful. But to reduce womanhood to that work of social construction, I think that's where it becomes, you know, too far and where you do step away from a Catholic understanding, which really does hold that there is a ground of human nature. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you mentioned existentialism, and that's exactly right. So existentialism, with the caveat that there are some Christian forms of existentialism you see in Dostoevsky and Kierkegaard that are cool, so fine. But um, <laughs> atheistic existentialism, <laughs> right, is this is this rejection or this reversal of the classical system of philosophy where, oh no, now I'm going to get it wrong, where essence precedes existence, yeah. right? What your act of existing is shaped by a pre-existing definition, this essence. But for right. Jean-Paul Sartre, right, he reversed it. He said your existence precedes your essence, so you get to choose. You know, humans are condemned right. to be free, right? We we have this freedom, so we don't have a defined label. Animals, they got their defined natures and labels, but we don't. So you get to make yourself to be whatever you want. Yeah. Right. So we're, we're radically free. So we enter into a reality that has no inherent meaning. So if it is to have meaning, we have to create that for ourselves, right? right? That's kind of the existentialist position. Yeah. And so I think that has really shaped the kind of feminist way of thinking about woman too. Like there's no, you know, it's we create what the meaning of woman is. So once you have that understanding about kind of how the suspicion of essentialism in feminist thought, it makes it not seem as weird what's kind of happened because it's almost following that thought to its logical conclusion. You know, what's really weird is Dave is a social, a strict social constructionist. <laughs> I can tell by his facial expressions as I was <laughs> <Yeah>. talking. <laughs> he is a strict well, it was, social it, It's stressful to hear you talk because I, I am imagining academia in this area. It's like trying to hold sand in your hands. I yeah. mean, what do you stand on? It's just terrible. This is a terrible way to, to teach. You know, like I, I think about like, the first time you watch Dead Poet Society, you think, oh, that's the greatest teacher ever. And then you turn 18 and you're like, that's the worst teacher ever, right? He gives them no <laughs> yes. truth to base it on, right? This is so strange, you know? Like, where do you, where Dave, do you go For the record, on one episode of Every Niche About, Dave made fun of me for liking that movie. And he was like, he's the worst teacher. At the end of the day, he's the worst teacher. They learned My nothing. My classical education dead. made sure that I knew one thing, and that was he was a bad teacher. He was not a good teacher. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, okay. So for navigating this for Catholics going forward, understanding that, I mean, like, th- this to me is so fascinating. And I honestly, I don't even want to talk about anything else because I find, like, this stuff is so absolutely fascinating because they're Right now you have in culture, right? The cultural soup, everyone's going back and forth because there is no metaphysical ground underneath. Mm-hmm. We're just asserting yeah. these things at each other. We're just, it seems like it's, and it seems like it's only getting worse. That might be, I accidentally got on Twitter the other day, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I know X, X going to give it to me and X gave it to me and it hurt. Uh, but like this understanding of this going back and forth of shrill assertion, that's all we're doing to each other because there is no metaphysical ground. In which the yeah. or like ultimate metaphysical ground that these things stand on. There's only like it, it, I don't I don't There's know power. I don't know what I'm saying. Huh? There's power. power. That's, that's it. That's what you're trying to articulate, right? Because if this is the underlying philosophy, and this is really like where you get from Butler and Foucault, um, that not only is all of reality socially constructed, but it's constructed by power, right? So who whoever controls the narrative, who controls language, they kind of decide what is real, what is knowable, what is good, what is bad. 
And so that philosophy gives rise to a certain kind of praxis, which is exactly what you're describing, right? It's trying to use language and to exert power in ways that shape the kind of reality that you want, right? So it no longer becomes even about trying to actually get down to what is true because that ground is denied from the outset. You mean that there is true? Exactly. There is no ground to get to. So all we can do is try to like win win the war for language. And that's one reason why I think, especially in the, the gender conversation, there's so much of a focus on language because so many of these more kind of novel emerging gender identities, because they're not grounded in sex, they're really grounded in language, both words, but also like the language of fashion, right? So they're, they're really grounded in signs mm-hmm. that are separated from what they're supposed to, to signify. So... So then that becomes, you know, you hear this argument sometimes, like, if you don't use this language, you're denying my existence. Yeah. And that might sound like hyperbole, but there's actually something true about that because the existence being asserted is fundamentally a linguistic one. Right. That requires the kind of social participation of everyone else in order for it to have the shape of reality. Yeah. The problem is like, I, it's, it's easy to not, it's not easy. It's, it's. I can I can imagine this in academia like I can imagine this in a book right but when you get to like okay how does that like in a household Mm -hmm. or in society like it is so difficult to understand like where are we trying to get to here and also and I've talked with Gomer about this a bunch of times it seems it makes me so nervous because like you said power is kind of what is like the wall that you hit right like eventually it's power that makes it and when you're trying to deny, like, let's say it's not femininity, but like masculinity, like that's a scary situation where men are like, you know, denying masculinity because they still have power. Right. And and eventually that's going to come out in terrible ways. I think about this all the time, like that society is like going to swing back and it's not going to be good. It's going to be. It's your death like, cult um, guy. It's your Viking it death it's cult that guy. guy. What's He's his psycho. name? Psycho, right? That guy. I can't remember. Oh man, Dave loves this Viking death cult I guy. I do not love him. <laughs> I, I, no, I but it's interesting. Not. Like in in the manosphere space, and I don't. Uh, okay, let's use that term. Like social media occupying by people who fancy themselves intellectual dark web people, but they are not. Who are pushing this narrative of anti feminism, right? Yeah, because it's it's the reaction to the reaction. I don't know. We're like twelve reactions down now at this point, but but yeah, yeah but they swing way too far. Yeah, and they're crazy. I mean, like yeah, they're insane. They're yeah, and the guy is like insanely popular for male speakers. What this guy is that this we're the referencing, Bronze Age pervert guy. What's that? I, it, is this it might Bronze be. Age pervert? Is that who you guys are talking about? No, 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 no. I haven't done social media in a while, so I'm a little. I yeah, I yeah. I've only read his books, but it was. Like you're reading his books and you're just like, oh, this is not good. Like, yeah, it's all the, see how see, popular. This is, yeah, this is the thing that JP two warned us about, right? All the worst stuff about masculinity right. is being championed as the end game for feminism, right? And now men are responding, trying to claim that space. So now that you have you have in the manosphere world, you have the the ura braveheart, I'm a man because I can kill you kind of thing. The Andrew Tate, you know, kind of shenanigans. Right. And then you have this whole female group that defends that, the the toxic women anti-feminist crowd. And it's like, and they're all in this giant feedback loop, and reason is just flying out the door. Right. And it's it's to me, it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. Cause there's there's no it's but it's shrill assertion on both sides. 
Like it's just, right. you know, the Andrew Tate's and, and the Pearl, whatever, just pearly things. This is sheer assertion. And so for us as Catholics, if we're going to speak truth into this culture, number one, we have to get to truth. We have to acknowledge that there is this thing called truth. And I think you did a phenomenal job opening up the book, comparing two stories, two yeah. creation stories. So could you tell us a little bit about the Babylonian? I always forget how in Enuma Elish. Did I say that right? I think that's right. Although I don't know. So, you know, I'm a reader, so I like read <laughs> yeah. things and I say them before yeah. I ever heard them spoken. So I'm, yeah. there's probably like some Hebrew scholars out there that are like cringing or Akkadian <laughs> scholars, whatever. Who cares about them? <laughs> yeah. I think it's the Enuma Elish. Yeah. Although sometimes I say Enuma Elish, so who knows what I'll say. Oh, yeah. So in the <laughs> book, I, talk, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I contrast these two creation stories. So one is the Babylonian creation narrative, the Enuma Elish. And then the other is uh, creation narratives in Genesis. So Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2 and 3. And one reason I think it's helpful to compare these is that, at least for the first Genesis account, at least this is kind of the, the scholarly understanding right now, that that was at least kind of written down and compiled at a time during the Babylonian exile. Yeah. So in other words, the Enuma Elish would have been kind of the dominant culture's creation story. Mm-hmm. So if you read Genesis 1 against that backdrop, it just makes certain things pop that don't oh, yeah. otherwise pop out. So the Enuma Elish is this crazy mythological, I mean, it's very much the language of myth. There's like gods everywhere, and it's in this, you know, kind of mythic setting that's hard to even imagine, like before the creation of the universe. Anyway, so it describes how their creator god, Mardu, comes into existence. Yeah. So he has this whole backstory because it has to give the genealogy of Marduk. So you have this like female, kind of feminine primordial figure, Tiamat, and her kind of consort, Apsu, her husband, Apsu, and they birth the pantheon. They're these water deities. Anyway, so then Marduk eventually is she, and Tiamat. Is she salt water and he's fresh water? Or is it the other way That's around? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So she's so like, he's a like the river and mm-hmm. she's the ocean or something. Yeah. And so Marduk is like several generations their grand progeny, right? And Eventually, Tiamat kind of turns into this like chaos monster, this like sea monster, basically. And Marduk and she go to battle, and then he he kills her. He kills her by basically like blowing her up like a balloon. He like gathers the four winds and like blows them, and she just like becomes this water balloon, and he pops her. <laughs> as, so one does, only, as one does, as one does to a deity. Yes, <laughs> it's only at this point in the narrative <laughs> that it's like pretty far deep. You know, then Marduk is like, "Wow, I've got this giant." corpse what should i do with it you know i'm feeling creative i've been destructive now i'm feeling creative so it's from tiamat's corpse that he carves out the heavens and the earth right so he kind of takes it's like a fish right you imagine like cutting a fish in half and creating like the heavens out of one side and anyway um and then he creates human beings out of fallen god named kingu who had been part of tiamat's army and so human beings are like this afterthought i mean creation itself is an afterthought and then human beings are more of an afterthought And all of this work of creation comes out of this epic destruction, this epic battle between this like masculine deity and this kind of primordial feminine. So if you have that in your mind, then you read Genesis 1, right? So first of all, there's some interesting language things happening there that kind of call to mind the Enuma Elish, like the language of the spirit of God hovering over the waters, right? And that language of the deep. The yeah. deep there is that same word is a cognate yeah, for te-om. Tiamat, Teom, yeah. Tiamat. Yeah. yeah, so it's the same awesome. word. So there you have like that's this awesome. image of, you know, that chaos monster, but instead it's like completely subdued, mm. right? 
and already subdued by that spirit of God hovering over the waters. So there's no battle. There's no work of destruction. There's no violence. There's no violence. There's no conflict between the masculine and the feminine. There's a, there's a creator who himself has no beginning, mm-hmm. right? He doesn't have his own genealogy. So if you think about it against that backdrop, then all those things kind of seem important in a way that, that we might miss because the story is so familiar to us. But certainly in that time that, you know, you kind of, I don't know, this might be goofy, but you're kind of like imagining people sitting around the campfire hearing the creation story and they are expecting this like bloodbath. And instead it's like this creator who himself is uncreated, you know, calling things into existence. And he divides things, but in a nonviolent way. Right. Right. And in a way that creates order. So anyway, so those are the two two kind of creation stories. And another thing I I think it, it draws out is how much dignity human beings are given in the Genesis creation stories mm-hmm. and the creation of human beings and especially their sexual differentiation is the culmination of God's creative work in both accounts. I mean, this is really remarkable to me, I think. Not only like how much dignity human beings are given, but also how much of an accent there is on the fact that they are male and female yeah. and that that is so important, that that's the completion or the apex of God's of God's work. Like, the differentiation of human beings isn't even mentioned in the, it's like not even, you know, instead all you have is this kind of cosmic conflict yeah. between the masculine and the feminine. So it's just such a different account of, of God, of human beings, and certainly of men and women. It strikes me, you know, when during the Babylonian exile, right, they, the Babylonians like were kind of experts at like putting their culture into their slaves, right? So they would take the wealthy, the learned and like put them in schools and like try to teach them that and the jews in particular right like were experts at resisting it right so you have all those stories and things like that and so that the fact that it was almost created as a way to resist that is so interesting because like right now we're in that situation where the world is just so aggressive right like everything is like in your face and we're trying to preserve ourselves from maybe some like corruption of thought like going back to Genesis is still extremely effective in doing mm-hmm. in doing that, just that. Yeah, and it's also interesting when you talk about this myth in Babylon, because that was the myth that was retold every year when they would re-coronate right. the king, right, over the people. And he is basically Marduk here to save the people from the enemies roundabout, right? And so it's not just a myth of, like, you know, a myth of, ultra violence cosmic level you know and and cardinal ratzinger talks about this so beautifully in his book on genesis about how in the book of genesis there's no primeval act of violence from which creation comes it is orderly it is rational and it is good and the order progresses until you reach humanity and that culminates in the union of god with humanity male and female not only with their shared dominion over all of creation you know, using that dominion language, but ultimately in the Sabbath, right? In the, in the, the ability to rest from work and to enter into this thing called the holy day, right? And you can see that, and, and that's every human's birthright, right? That is all of us, not just the one who stands in the image of Marduk, right? Sitting on the throne of Babylon. That's a cultural story that is foundational, whether we acknowledge it or not. Now we're trying to do our best to get away from it, but that's a foundational cultural story of the West, right? Is like looking at this thing and seeing man, male and female, 
right? This image and likeness, dominion, orderly creation, no violence, speaks his word, right? There's the Tehom, but the Tehom, while formless, is now given form and all this stuff, but not in, you know, we're not dragon's blood, right? We're not, we're not fashioned from the corpse of a slain deity. One of my big things, I love going through the Greek myths. They're so fun. I love, I love Homer so much, but it helps me to be a better evangelist when I look at Acts of the Apostles with this in the background. Right. And right now I'm going through Plato's Republic and having all of these stories that are so powerful for that time and how part of it overlaps with the church and with the Bible and with the gospels and then how some of it stands in stark contrast. And you're like, this is what the early church had to deal with. Yeah. Our times, you know, it's like, I feel like we're returning. The great psych, the great conflagration is returning <laughs> with all of this. So how do we evangelize in this culture? How do we, how do we speak truth to power? That's what I want to know. Now, how, do we, how do we bring the gospel? Where do you see the unique light of Christ being able to break into to the Judith Butlers of the world, who I know you're still, you still love and admire and, and whatnot, even though you might not. Didn't you meet her? No, I mean, no, I met her early years. I mean, I didn't actually meet her. I went to a conference where she was oh, speaking. Oh, that's what like it was. That's what it was. Yeah. I, th- I would say I'm fond of her. I'm not, I don't know that I love and admire her, but, you know, I just have this kind of fondness okay. for her. Okay, fair enough, fair so enough. So I actually have met her. Oh. Did you really? really? I did. Wow. Yeah. That's I met amazing. her, believe it or not, at a meeting of international socialists in Burlington, Vermont. And that's <laughs> a true story. That is amazing. True story. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That is so and did cool. she shake okay. your hand? Did you meet her? What'd you do? Yeah, so I had become actually I was going to share this story because neither this I haven't awesome. told anyone this. So yeah, you have to share this story. So I saw the sign. You know, like, I saw the signs when we were living there. I saw the signs like for a meeting of international socialists, and I was like, "Oh man, I got to go to this. This is going to be crazy." You know, I accidentally wore a tie, which apparently is not socially acceptable with them, and <laughs> that marked you. Right? That's a tell. And no one would talk to me except for the professors who were there. There was like, like all of the philosophy and English professors were there. And one of them who was in charge, her name was Tristan. She's a, a lesbian who was in charge of this particular group of the International Socialist Meeting. We became friends. We're still friends to this day. And I started going to the meetings and I would just like say little things like just like, well, what about, you know, and then they would just destroy me. Right. <laughs> but Tristan in particular, I kept, you know, the relationship up with and was really trying and she like started to come around. So Tristan is like, you know, very like she was very open. She was an honest, absolutely honest and and just as versed in everything you just talked about as and like her language. I literally had to learn a new language to yeah. talk to her. So we became friends. And when she started to see how my wife and I interact, that's when she finally was like, well, OK, you know, maybe he's not like a horrible patriarch that just, you know, oppresses women. OK, and and. Anyway, so she so they had a conference and and she was there and she introduced me to her and said, you know, he he's the opposite of us. Basically, he believes the opposite of what we believe. But she's like, but there's something there, you know. Well, just recently when well, when your book first came out, uh, The Genesis of Gender, I read it like as soon as I could. And I sent Tristan this text message. And Tristan so far is like kind of come around, like as far as like the idea of God the idea of maybe even like maybe even a Christian God, but the thought of like Catholicism where there's like priests mm-hmm. and popes mm-hmm. and stuff like that is just like, yeah. she just can't. And so for years, I've been trying to get her to read <laughs> <laughs> for years. I've been trying to get her to read like the feminine genius and Pope John Paul II's theology of the body. And, you know, she's just like, I can't, I can't, I can't get over the fact that, you know, that just the fact that it's written by a Pope, right? Yeah, like, yeah. It's just, you know, that kind of thing. And, <laughs> 
So the other day I just texted her. I didn't say who it was from. I was like, I texted her this quote from your book. It says, or I think it was from your book. I, it says, there's givenness to our bodies that makes present the realities of God. And the intricate nexus of these images, that sacred web, has become far more precious to me, far more beautiful than a flattened, bland gesture towards earthly equality. And she flipped out and has been reading like everything she could that you've written. And so then the other day I said, Hey, I'm going to interview her on our podcast. And she's like, well, first of all, she like took a dig at me. She's like, maybe I'll finally listen to one of your podcasts. And then she said, (laughs) she said, who wrote that? And I told her, so she's been reading everything. And she said, okay, maybe I'll read the feminine genius thing. Send it to me again. So who knows? Maybe it'll be Kristen. Like, yeah. Kristen. <laughs> right, right. I mean, you know, it's funny, like that's evangelization right there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like actually just showing up and having real conversations with people. Oh yeah. Being yeah. open yourself and finding people who are open enough to have like real dialogue. Yeah. You I know, mean, the like, first conversations we had were literally, they were talking about a revolution that they were playing. This is not a joke. Like they actually, oh, of course. Yeah, like, no, I totally, yeah, 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 well, you know, yeah. You know. <laughs> and I said to them like, well, what about someone like me who wouldn't go along with this? And they were like, well, like, I mean, it was just like, we would kill you. Like, that's exactly, oh, wow. it's like, what the heck guys? Like we've been meeting together for six months, you know, like, wow. but yeah. So. Well, that's amazing that you you kept up, you know, and that you were, yeah for like, years. We still talk often, and actually, she comes to visit every once in a while. But um, yeah, but it's well, just I think I like love she these just stories. Dave's story hour is my favorite thing. She really believed that I was oppressing my wife, you mm-hmm. know, like she yeah. truly believed that, and it it just took her seeing it, you know, that was like, oh, okay, this is different than mm-hmm. what I expected, you know, like mm-hmm. when actually I was the one being oppressed. Just kidding, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> Have you guys read? Um, Oh my gosh, no, I don't know the name of it. But it's by Monsignor Shea. It's like from Apost- from Christendom yeah, from to Apostolic yeah, Mission. So, okay. so fantastic. So, I mean, that's like shaped. It was a great, when I read it, I was like, oh, this is naming what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's, it's helped kind of clarify for me, I think, the kind of evangelization that we need. Because, you know, to be totally honest, like, first of all, I don't think the culture war stuff is good Effective. on any level. But I also think it's like, it's trying to preserve something that's already gone. And in some ways it's trying to exert this like power move to kind of enforce from the top down a certain vision of reality that most people have already abandoned. Yeah. So it's kind of a failed project to begin with. So I really think like returning to that, that apostolic vision where we're in the Areopagus and we're like, I'm going to try to use this story here that might connect with people. I'm going to try to speak to the people who are here and try to enter into their world enough to kind of, present them with a vision of a different world, right? Yeah. Without like coercion, without kind of trying to like manipulate or shame people, but really just like presenting what is beautiful and true and having this kind of invitation. Because I think the more, in some ways, like the more post-Christian and the more secular our society becomes, I think the more we'll see this resurgence of people who are just looking for something more and who are hungry for a different story so I think we need to be ready to kind of present. I mean, I, I think like I'm fundamentally yeah. a storyteller. So that's why I really liked that book because he's like, this is a, we, we need to present a certain way of seeing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I in, totally in as agree. compelling a way as possible and, and then trust God, you know. Do you, have you ever met Sherry Waddell or interacted with Sherry Waddell? She wrote Forming Intentional Disciples. Oh, I, I think, think if you so. haven't, you guys would hit it off. I know. Okay. Well. The whole time down. you were saying that, I was like, Sherry yeah. Waddell and you need to get together. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think she is by far the greatest, in my mind, the greatest thinker in the evangelization space, especially like culturally and institutionally. Yeah. They, well, this has been so fantastic. I I, I want to do this like five or 10, 20, 100 more times. So yeah, don't you feel embarrassed that we even did the five episodes with that? I know. Well, I don't know if you guys do repeats, but you're fun to talk to. So I would, I would yeah. come on again if you ever yeah. want to. So. We're definitely putting that quote on our website. We're fun to talk to, Dr. Abigail Favalli. You are. I got the world. <laughs> We're fun to talk to. That's it. <laughs> Dr. Favalli, where can people find you? This has been such a fantastic oh, no. uh, conversation. I hope that people will get your book. And we've been talking about it a lot so far. So. Yeah. So I have written things that are out there that people can find a couple of books. So the conversion memoir and then the genesis of gender and various essays here and there as well. Beyond that, like I try not to be super findable, to be honest. I do have a Twitter account. I can't remember the last time I was on Twitter, but it's still kind of there as this vestigial portal that I check (laughs) every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah, I have your, your book is on the genesis of gender, a Christian theory published by Ignatius. It's also on, you can get on Kindle. And you can get it on Audible, and I own it on all three because I keep giving my book away and I keep wanting to have a copy. So thank you so much for coming on the show, kind of helping us navigate the language of gender, gender theory, gender studies in the in the Catholic kind of vision of that. So uh, God bless you. God bless your work over there right. at the McGrath Thanks Institute. So much. And uh, yeah, adios. 